Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to the People's Medicine Show. Let's begin tonight with a 1977 song from Santa Esmeralda. music. So this is the People's Medicine Show. This is on the Susan Weed Blog Talk Radio podcast feed. I do the show every month on the first Thursday in the month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. 
It's a call-in show. If you'd like to call in tonight, the number is 646-929-2463 and press 1 if you want to be placed in the queue. I don't have much experience. I've been doing this show for about three years, and I don't have much experience with interacting with people who want to call in. Generally, I don't get many callers, and I'll um, then when I eventually do get a caller, I tend to be a little bit awkward. So I just wanted to, <laughs> I guess, apologize beforehand if I if you catch me stumbling. But we we do have a caller tonight, and I'm not sure if um the person can be um if they want to be placed in the queue to speak on the air with me or have a question about herbal medicine or just want to discuss any subject at all. So I'm going to let that person talk if they want to talk. I'm not too sure if they're in the queue. Oh, so they, they hung up. So perhaps they were just, um, perhaps they were just um, listening to the show. So you can also call that number just to listen to the show. So I am, um, perhaps I need to learn how to introduce a caller properly instead of scaring a caller away. So I um, picked a few things to talk about tonight. I've been, for the past several months, I've been working on speaking precisely to say exactly what I mean and to perhaps tighten up my language. I feel like uh, our sloppiness with our speech diminishes our power that when we speak specifically with precision that we only increase our power or just claim what little power that we all have. But that's something I've been thinking about. And I was thinking about the words when I'm listening to other people talk, whenever they say always or never, when is it ever really <laughs> always or never? There's always seems to be an exception to the rule. And I don't know when it's ever appropriate to always say, always say, always say always, or to never say never. <laughs> but that's something I've been thinking about lately. But getting back to why I do this show, I want to just become comfortable speaking publicly. And I feel I have something to bring to the table to share on a regular basis. And this is an era where anyone can be a broadcaster, whether it's on your social media uh, a page or on blog talk radio. I tell you, the, the price of having a professional online uh, studio on blog talk radio is really, it's so affordable that um, we, on this station, we, we could have one or two hour show every single night of the week. And I think it comes out to maybe $40 a month that blog talk charges, but it's just an amazing era and time that we live in. Something I, so I go to a public speaking club about twice a month. And one of the more mature members who've been going for five years, who've developed their public speaking skills and presentation skills, they were talking about their mentor that they have in the program and how they aspire to be like this person and they cling to everything that they really say about public speaking. And they were saying that if they need to speak in front of a group for two hours, 
they do absolutely no preparation because two hours is quite a bit of time and there's plenty of time to ramble and go on and on with ourselves. And they contrasted that by saying if they're expected to give a five-minute pitch just to get up and speak for five minutes, they would prepare for five days um, before that to make sure that they can accomplish in five minutes what they really want to say. So that just goes to show you that, I guess, brevity is the soul of wit, that oftentimes if we need to convey something, that perhaps uh, keeping it to five minutes would be, um, that's kind of a cool rule of thumb, that you can really communicate whatever you want to say within five minutes. But here I am with a two-hour time slot on Block Talk Radio. I got a caller tonight, but I'm not sure if they want to uh, stay. But if they just stay on, I'll, I'll, I'll unmute them later to see if they want to say anything. So I picked a few things. So I've been really uh, ambivalent about social media. Sometimes I hate it, and sometimes I'm like, this is brilliant. And I think it just comes down to having firm boundaries, not to spend too much time on it, to be entertained, to take it seriously, yet not take it seriously, and to just find our own way within these things. But I've been, uh, I joined Instagram a few years ago, and then last year I was really uh, fascinated with all the different types of people. So I started subscribing to a lot of the cannabis pages that are cannabis-themed. And I was also trying to find a lot of herbalism things. So something like Instagram really is fun to be able to um, subscribe to different um, people. So in case you're wondering, I have an Instagram page, and I named it Big Island Botanica. And if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I post what I'm doing often in my garden. I just built a beautiful screen canopy out of steel pipes, one-inch EMT pipes, and I'm experimenting with how to um, use canopies to either uh, shade a certain percentage of the sun, which helps me to reduce the amount of watering that I need to do. And then oftentimes there's excessive amounts of rain that it's just too much for the plants. And I'm finding that the plants that I have growing underneath the canopy right now are just beaming happy. <laughs> and it really is kind of fun to use a human technology to nurture and help plants grow. Otherwise, plants would be flooded or over-sunshined. It's also interesting when I, I've been spraying the plants with a BT um, organic I think they call it an organic pesticide, but basically it's a bacillus strain of bacteria that you spray on plants. And if any caterpillar type pests uh, take a bite of that plant, uh, they get a stomach ache and die. And it's a pretty effective caterpillar uh, deterrent. But I'm, I'm looking forward to perhaps using netting and all sorts of other ways besides having to spray tons of this BT on the garden, every time it rains, I was told to reapply it because the caterpillars and moths, they actually need to actually eat a piece of the plant that has the BT 
sprayed on it. I've been watching some YouTube videos and there's, I guess, other ways to apply it. There's like a powder that they shake onto plants, but I've been just experimenting right now with just a regular Monterey brand spray, uh, brand of BT spray ready to use. So I'm looking, investigating ways that I could use it more, um, more efficiently, more cost effectively, because I think this bottle of ready to use spray was $12. And I think they also sell it in a concentrate form. But my garden is absolutely happy. And I've been playing also with uh, self-irrigating planters. So if you want to look that up, uh, SIP, self-irrigating planters. And I bought some ready-to-use ready ones. You just put a little plastic thing in the bottom of a, a five-gallon paint bucket. And you plant... You, it's a sort of a reservoir and it, it provides a, a, a layer of air and then a large reservoir underneath the plant. And it's a lot of fun just to be able to look at the level stick on this thing. I think the brand that I think, there's different ones. I think one's called a city gardener. The one I have is called Grow Bucket, but it's been a lot of fun. I put a picture of my salad greens on the the blog talk radio photo stream for tonight's episode. So if you want to see that, it's at blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed. And this is the October 3rd edition of People's Medicine Show, if you'd like to see my little slideshow that I put up tonight. So Instagram, I subscribe to a couple of really cool people. There's this one person whose name was Masonic underscore smoker and he's this gentleman who lives in uh, East LA and he breeds different types of cannabis in, in his backyard and then he has like a little seed business that he sells the seeds that he produced in an outdoor setting um, so he, he was offering the seeds for sale and I guess it's um, against the rules to Instagram so I think you have to um, make it very clear in your profile, nothing for sale, because I've noticed that the cannabis brands that um, make that advertisement on Instagram, they don't get banned. So what I mean banned is um, they just wipe, wipe your profile clean and it's like you never really existed. It says that page is not available. So I kind of miss uh, seeing this, this gentleman from the uh, East Los Angeles area and his, 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 he has the whole urban farm thing going on with the different chickens and then he also has like the whole ghetto thing of East LA and just a real entertaining stream and he is missing and I, from what I understand I get trying to become hip with the Instagram thing so oftentimes they, they'll just get wiped off the face of Instagram and then they'll They'll just start a new profile, and they'll put it in their profile. Oh, I was deleted, and I had 60,000 subscribers. And then they'll, they'll get another 10 or 20,000 in another day. But I still haven't found this person named Masonic Smoker. But he did send me um, a pack of his seeds, and they were, he had most of those uh, gourmet, like, cannabis seeds. They, 
quite expensive, like a 10 pack of seeds often is like $75 or $100. And he sent me a pack for $20 and it was just a mixture of everything that he's worked on. In his, and he said, no guarantees, it's a $20 pack of seeds. But even then, I think, I'm trying to think of how many pa- how many seeds were in the package of 20. It is quite expensive, but I've gotten so much value from his Instagram that I felt like I'd like to try to. Um, and then I've also been listening to different people who make cannabis seeds and people that are growing them under lights indoors. Those seeds are not as robust as seeds that were produced outside in the sun with, with rain, wind, Mother Nature, bugs, those are going to be more robust seeds. So it is really interesting to see that there's some major cannabis seed producers that do all their seed producing on indoors under lights, and it's sort of accepted. And perhaps if you needed to use those seeds, it would be wise to also grow them under lights. I mean, so it's just another question of plants that I've been looking into there was um yeah it really interesting though how i don't know i was touching on this last month i really don't know how these type of uh, social media groups that offer free accounts um just are able to just wipe people off their off their services because they they're trying to avoid controversy in any form so been talking a lot, but yeah, something in the news related to cannabis was these uh, vape pens that are offered, and they're all they're being offered in legal places where cannabis is legal in dispensaries, but they're also widespread in all over the country in states where people are making you know selling them in an illicit fashion. And the first time I heard of the story, there were like 100 people that have reported illness to using the cat. Um, So I think they were very specific. They said that they were all from illicit sources and that they had identified one of the solvents that they use to make the cannabis oil inside the vaporizer more like um, less viscous. And I think they identified the chemical as vitamin E acetate. So that's what I know about it so far. But I have been using a vaporizer to stay off cigarette smoking since like 2012. And I've been following that for a number of years. So hopefully this um, is going through. This is a, I had trouble connecting through my regular Skype connection tonight. And... It shows that my mic is open, so I'm hoping that my uh, I am coming through and I'm not just speaking to the air. So let me get back to what I was saying. Uh, so you know, the people that are using uh, vaporizers and like these e-cigarettes to use with nicotine have for a number of years that you do not put volatile oils in vaporizers that it's going to lead to trouble. And it's fascinating that that's one of um, the things Susan Weed is always very vocal about, that the use of any kind of um, essential oil, especially ones that are high in volatile substances, 
you're asking for trouble, you're, you're using a concentrated chemical constituent, which by its very nature is poisonous, that um, the, if you're familiar with what an LD50 is, um, these are all substances that have a definitive amount that can actually kill you, or it could kill 50% of the test subjects, which are usually animals. I'm not aware of any human studies that are used to measure the LD50 of certain substances, but that is something in the cannabis community that they were very dead set about using uh, propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin, which have sort of a, a history within the nicotine vaporing community as being um, not 100% safe, like especially the propylene glycol. There are people that have a sensitivity to it, but I think it, it's a sensitivity that is quickly identified and it's probably less than one in 20 people. But there was um, a real strong movement within people who were making cannabis THC vapes that they did not want any of these extra solvents, but they have no trouble um, adding uh, isolated terpenes back into their cannabis distillates. So the other uh, variable that I'm not seeing uh, spoken about is uh, these electric um, herbal or tobacco vaporizers uh, utilize a metal coil which heats up. Sometimes there's a coating, a ceramic coating on the coil, but um, the, these things are um, substances that could um, be released they could form chemical reactions with what's in these vaporizers. So if you have um, a heating coil that's made out of like nickel or titanium, that when you combine it with, a, uh, you know, an isolated like volatile oil, oil, uh, perhaps you are creating chemical reactions that are causing these um, wave of sickness that's happening uh, amongst people that are using illicitly obtained THC vapes. So that's something I just wanted to touch on tonight. I don't know how much insight I've added to the discussion, but it is something that I, I'm not seeing really talked about is um, that inside these vaporizers, there are metals and ceramics and different types of things on top of um, uh, solvents, which make the material more vaporizable. It's not a word, vapable, vaporizable, vapable. So I do not really have too much um, going on tonight. Uh, let me see what, what I announced I was going to talk about tonight. Okay, here we go. Nutrition cult. <laughs> So I stopped eating wheat back in August, on August 15th, and I, I, entered the, I entered one of these nutrition cults, and this one was called, I think I spoke about it last month, Wheat Belly. I was immediately banned from their Facebook group, and I noticed that the um, guru, the leader of the cult, uh, his name is Dr. William Davis, uh, he put this thing on 
is YouTube saying how H. pylori is like a pathogen that needs to be eliminated. And it's just such a slippery slope when you get into these things where people, they get some benefit from stopping eating wheat and then they just fall right into like this blind allegiance. And I'm really just, I was like, let me touch on it because I'm sure there's people that look at Susan Weed and nourishing herbal fusions as some sort of um, nutrition cult, but the fact is, you know, you you try some uh, infusions and you drink them every day for a few weeks and you feel better. But I think it pretty much can end right there. That um, there's no real like uh, philosophies that <laughs> are kind of imposed or included into this. It's like you know, take what you want and leave the rest. So that was just something I, I threw it out there. Perhaps I had more information earlier in the month. But I was like, yeah, I should touch on that. There's all these different types of, like, I guess there's the, the vegans, the raw vegan, the ketogenics. And that was another question I had, too. So there are people that claim that uh, a ketogenic diet can be followed permanently. <laughs> and I guess um, there are people with life-threatening illnesses, and they use a ketogenic diet to keep their symptoms and their illnesses from progressing. And there's a lot of, you know, ongoing research about the ketogenic diet. And basically, from what I understand is um, in order for a diet to invoke ketogenesis, uh, I should have wrote down that word, uh, you need a certain, I guess it's individual for each person. So... I would suppose it would be maybe 15 grams of net carbohydrates per meal. And that's just, I guess, a loose number. And perhaps there's people that could be in ketosis by eating 30 grams of um, net carbohydrates per meal, but I'm not sure. But that was basically um, at this nutrition cult. They were using that that number. That, uh, yeah, our meals have less than 15 grams of net carbohydrates and to arrive at a net carbohydrate, you would subtract the grams of fiber from the grams of carbohydrates. So I suppose if it was an extremely high carbohydrate meal, you subtract the grams of fiber, and that would help um, your body uh, process these sugars. But it really is uh, fascinating how much the, the gut biome really affects people. So getting back to the H. pylori, so there seems to be a um, pretty much an indisputable uh, connection that when people have uh, ulcers that just do not go away and they take a, a round of antibiotics and they eliminate the H. pylori bacteria from their stomach, that their uh, chronic uh, ulcer, ulcerated stomach improves. But then I've seen um, opposing viewpoints that say the H. pylori is not purely pathogenic. It's not purely a harmful uh, germ that's in the human body. There seems to be an association with um, an increased amount of asthma when people do not have this 
um, bacteria in their in their biome. So I think um, it's something I'm I'm learning about. Um, I find it really fascinating that some people still have that heroic kind of viewpoint that oh it needs to be killed, it needs to be eliminated, it, <laughs> it is bad and it does not have anything good to offer. So there's always, see, I'm going to use that word, there always seems to be, always seems, see? So I think I qualified my use of always with seems, which is sort of a weaseling out. But there always seems to be, two sides to every um, story, and I, th I find it really important to look at both sides. So I think I'm going to end this sh show pretty early tonight, but I have a few things, a few more things I'm going to um, talk about. So, all right, let me just take a, take a break. I, I talked about most things, so I'm going to come back in about five minutes, and I'll, I'll talk about mescaline and mescaline-containing plants. So I'll be back in about five minutes.
Okay, I'm back. So, I think I already spoke on a previous show about fenugreek. It, it appears I'm drinking it actually as a functional food. I'm trying to uh, make myself less uh, appetizing to blood-sucking insects, which seem to have an affinity because I'm very delicious. So I've noticed that when I drink fenugreek tea regularly, I get bit a little bit less. But there seems to be a number of other health benefits. And I'm going to, um, I think it, I, I Googled it uh, yesterday just to see, are there any health benefits? And it seems to help people in menopause. I think the famous use of fenugreek is for lactation, to increase lactation or maybe to stop lactation, I don't remember. But I wanted to uh, read this write-up that's uh, sort of a new write-up on mescaline, and this is from the realitysandwich.com website. So this looks like a, a brand-new write-up on it. And I've been growing San Pedro cactus now for about 20 years, and I've served it to people. I've served it to myself. And... Um, I really don't know how to discuss mescaline, but it's something that I feel comfortable. I just feel comfortable with it. And perhaps when I was a teenager, it used to be a really popular um, in Yonkers, New York, where I, where I grew up. And you can buy like 100 mescaline tablets for about $30. So it was like 30, 30 cents each. And boy, that really made going to the roller rink a lot more fun. So it, it kind of started out sort of as sort of a recreational teenager thing. And then as an adult, it sort of has turned into sort of a sacramental sort of rite that I go through every so often. So I was at the Cluster Headache Conference in Dallas, Texas this previous month. And they were talking about how uh, when people are regimented and they use magic mushrooms about uh, several times throughout the year, that they'll um, completely eliminate these occurrences of these very painful cluster headaches. So, and there just seems to be indisputable evidence that this is beneficial for most people. And there's some people that are very much against, they do not want to go on a psychedelic experience, uh, four or five times a year and some, you know, and when I say regimented, I mean, it's done regularly, like every two to three months, they, or maybe it's once every six months, right before their usual cycle of cluster headaches, they would use. And I've been practicing it and so far, um, it does seem to have really reduced any of the symptoms that I've had, you know, been experiencing now for the past 30 years, didn't occur to me that there was any kind of, in the years that I drank mescaline or uh, used magic mushrooms, that I had a lot less of these cluster headaches. It just never occurred to me that, and so it's, it's quite mysterious that there's, you know, this small percentage of the population that gets these very painful episodes. They're healthy in every, absolute, every other way, except they're disabled for uh, periods of time, sometimes uh, in an episodic way and sometimes in a very chronic way that's just very much ongoing. 
So I was listening to people say, well, sometimes um, they'll use magic mushrooms for several years and they, they stop working. And they'll switch over to something like um, paper, LSD, you know, LSD-25 that's applied to paper. And for some reason that they'll work, they'll work with that. So the, the use of psychedelics does seem to, I don't know, it seems to favor sort of just drifting in and out of it and not just being all caught up with one. See, my, my use of San Pedro cactus is maybe once every three or four years, it just calls me and says it's time. And from what I found out that it's, it's quite pleasurable if the set and setting are proper, if my head is right, my environment is right, and I'm enjoying the people around me. If I'm uncomfortable with the people around me, I think that's probably much asking for trouble. You don't want to use psychedelics in any kind of environment where you're not comfortable with the people who are around you. That's really all the information that I have about masculine. I'm really interested in how to serve it to others to perhaps not over serve it, not give people too much. But I, I always will favor giving a person too much than too little. That's just where I'm coming from at this point. So I'm going to read some.